Gospel of Mark, continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Turn to Mark chapter 14. We will be looking this morning at verses 43 uh, through 52. Verse 43 through 52. Please give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired and infallible and life-giving word. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple preaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word, mighty write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? O Lord God, we now come before your word, your holy life-giving word. And we pray, O Father, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, open up the ears of our hearts, to both see and to hear Jesus Christ afresh here, as the suffering servant who has come down to suffer for us, the one we despised and esteemed not. We pray, O Father, that in and through the reading and teaching and preaching of your word now, you would draw our hearts ever closer to our suffering servant, our great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness and who even now sits at your right hand interceding for us. Pour out your spirit. Might your spirit be met with the words that I utter that are faithful to the sound doctrines of your word. And use these words to pierce the hearts of your saints and conform us more into the image of your blessed Son, our Lord and Savior. It is in his name that we pray now. Amen. Last week we saw Christ and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we saw Jesus there, as it were, shrinking before his God in full recognition of what it was he was about to face as the sin-bearer of the world, as he carried upon his shoulders our sins. And at the end of that passage last week, in verse 41 through 42, Jesus said that the hour has come, my betrayer is at hand. And what we will begin to see today is the beginning of that hour, 
that process of convicting and condemning and killing Jesus, the Lord of glory, God in the flesh. However, as we see this arrest from men coming with all their vitriolic hatred of Christ, we must understand at the same time that God is orchestrating all of this. This is the means by which God will bring his wrath and his judgment upon Christ so that in Christ Jesus and his death at the cross, his justice and wrath is satisfied. So as we see in the next few weeks, the cruelty of man towards Jesus, we must always remember what we read in this passage from the very lips of Christ, that he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is all under the sovereign control of his Father in heaven. So we need to remember that as we continue through marching toward the end of the Gospel of Mark, that as we see the cruelty of man, Christ is able to be calm at every single juncture of his trial and arrest because he knows that all of this is taking place in accordance with the Scriptures. That is, God and his Father, his good Father, is orchestrating all of it. So today we see that that process of convicting and condemning and killing Jesus at the hands of ruthless and angry, sinful men. Uh, But we will see this process played out in four stages. First, we will see his arrest. Second, we will see his trial before the Jewish council. Second, we will see his trial, or excuse me, third, we will see his trial before Pilate. And then fourth and finally, his being handed over by Pilate uh, to be crucified. But today, this morning, we will be looking at the first part of that four-stage process, uh, Jesus Christ's arrest. Uh, Just to give you an indication of where we will be going this morning, I'm just going to briefly give an exposition of this passage, uh, verse 43 through 52, go verse by verse. And then at the end, we will close with two points of application. So first, the exposition of this passage. Verse 43, we are told that while Jesus was speaking to Peter, James, and John, recall last week as Jesus is distressed at what is uh, about to happen as he faces that cup of wrath that, that God is going to pour over him, Jesus asks his three closest friends, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to come and to pray with them. And so it is Peter, James, and John that that Jesus is in the midst of speaking to. And as he is speaking to Peter, James, and John, Judas comes with a crowd behind him who are carrying swords and clubs. Now we are told that these armed men are representatives of the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Uh, Now there's two things I want us to note here in verse 43. First, Mark wants us to know who it is that has ordered this arrest. It is the leaders in Israel. It is those leaders he spent two chapters back, a few weeks back, uh, uh, debating in the temple. It is the leaders of Israel, the chief priests, scribes, and elders who are ordering this arrest. This crowd more than likely was made up of both temple police and Roman soldiers. The temple police being the Levites, who were in charge of 
of taking care of the temple. There were, they were the ones that were the temple police, and they often carried clubs with them. Uh, these temple police were authorized to make arrests, lead accused persons to court, and carry out sentences imposed by the courts. However, the men carrying the swords are most likely Roman soldiers. It was not common uh, for the temple police to carry swords. That was what the Roman soldiers uh, would carry. Uh, The Sanhedrin, which is the official governing body for the Jewish people who will uh, bring Christ before trial next week, as we will see, more than likely came to the Roman authorities, perhaps even Pilate himself. Uh, asking for the soldiers to help in arresting this Jewish insurrectionist. Uh, You recall, you remember, we mentioned a few weeks back that this is Passover week. This is the Passover festival. And during Passover festival, Jerusalem's population would swell up sometimes up to 200,000 people. And so during that Passover week, the Roman soldiers and Roman authorities were on high alert to seek to quell any unrest that might take place with the massive crowds that would flood in for the Passover week. And they would be very interested in helping take down an individual who the Sanhedrin is saying is causing unrest among the Jewish people. However, Mark wants us, the reader, to know that though there are Roman soldiers involved here, This is all coming from the leadership in Israel. The very representatives of the religious system of Jesus' people are calling forth Gentile and Jewish authorities to come with swords and clubs and to arrest the Lord of glory, their Messiah. Second, Mark also makes a point to let us know who this Judas is. He gives the added marker. He is one of the twelve. It's an added marker of who this person is. He is one of Jesus' disciples. He is one of Jesus' friends. It's a shocking thing. It's like when you read a mystery novel and you're wondering who does it the whole time and the author says it was John, his brother, and you're supposed to gasp at the knowledge of it. It is Judas one of the twelve. You recall last week we looked at Isaiah 53 and we looked at Jesus Christ who is the man of sorrows. And there it says that he is the man of sorrows as Isaiah says because we esteemed him not. Jesus Christ's own people order his arrest. Jesus' own friend, one of his twelve, betrays him. And as we see in this passage, All of his disciples flee from him. The very fact that it is his own people, the people that are closest to the word of God and the promises concerning Messiah only adds to our knowledge of the depravity of man. Those closest to God's word, those closest to Christ in the pages of Scripture are those that have him arrested and seek to kill him. Judas is more than likely at the front of what John 18.3 says is a cohort of men. Now, a cohort generally consisted of about 600 soldiers. 
This is a massive army coming with swords and clubs drawn to arrest Christ. Judas is leading this massive army-like, war-like charge toward his Christ. It's one of his twelve. It's one of his disciples leading this army. I think it shows us, I think it's a sobering reminder to us that no one is exempt from leaving the Lord of glory, from betraying Christ. It's one of the twelve. It is a lesson to us that we are to guard ourselves. We are to watch over ourselves in the knowledge. Here is is a clear demonstration of the depravity, our depravity. If one of Christ's twelve would betray him, no one is exempt. We are to keep guard and to watch over ourselves, to constantly be asking ourselves, how are we seeing, how are we receiving, how are we treating and listening to Christ? And Judas, Judas, who leads this cohort toward Christ, has told them that the sign he will give will be a kiss. Now, a kiss on the cheek was the customary way a student would greet a rabbi, his teacher, his, his master, It was a sign of respect. It's akin to a soldier saying, the one that I salute and say, sir, to take him down. He gives him a sign of respect as he shows him the most disrespect he could possibly show Christ. Verse 47, one of Jesus' disciples strikes the servant of the high priest and cuts off his ear. Now, we know from John's account in John chapter 18 uh, that this person that cuts off the ear is, in fact, Peter, the disciple, and that the servant was a man named Melchus. And in Luke 22's account of this very event, he will tell us that Jesus Christ healed the man's ear. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Here is the very last miracle that Christ is going to perform until his resurrection. And it is a miracle that is used to heal one who is there to kill him. Jesus Christ is going to extend mercy to sinners all the way up to his dying breath. Even as he lays on the cross and he says, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. What mercy As he is at the hands of his betrayers, he still holds out his hand of forgiveness and mercy. We are told in John 18, 11, that following this event, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? Peter is still fighting the wrong war. He is fighting that wrong war that he was fighting back in in chapter 8 where we saw Peter rebuke Christ and his cross. His battle is a flesh and blood battle, while his Lord's is a spiritual battle. The arrest must take place because it will be the means by which God will pour out the cup of his wrath that we saw last week. Christ asked might escape him. This is the means by which God will bring his wrath upon Christ and pour out his justice 
upon our representative for us so that we might be might have forgiveness of sins. Peter still doesn't get it. He's still fighting a flesh and blood battle while his Lord is fighting a spiritual one for us. Verse 48 through 49, Jesus says, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. This arrest is coming at night, and it's coming secretly. Yet Jesus has been in the temple day by day, as we saw a couple chapters back, teaching clearly and openly before the public, not just the chief priests, scribes, and elders, but before all the people. But this arrest is coming at night. It's coming in secret. It's coming when the massive crowds and the public is not around. You remember when the chief priest decided back in verse 1 through 2 of this very same chapter to to kill Jesus. They needed to do it secretly so as to not cause an uproar among the people. Remember the teachings in the temple, what happened in that temple. Jesus proved his wisdom before the leaders of Israel in condemning them time and time again, getting in, if you will, a battle of wits with them, proving time and time again that he stands on the word of truth and not them, so that the people, we are told, marveled at him. And at the end of his discourse in the temple with, remember all those, those leaders of Israel from Pharisees to Herodians to chief priests to elders and scribes, having their authority threatened by Christ, come out of the woodwork to challenge him after he challenges them and takes them down according to the word we are told in chapter 12, verse 34, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well, you can't build a case against a man after he's made you look like a fool in the midst of his teaching that the people marvel at. No, you need to make a case against him when nobody's around. In the pitch black dark of night when he's helpless and in chains. And what we see is that it works. Those same people that marveled at him are the ones that will be screaming crucify him. I think the chief priests, scribes, and elders here are banking on the fact that we, in our sin, in our knee-jerk reaction, really have the presumption of guilt when we see one in chains and put in chains by people of authority. They are banking on the short memory of these people, and they will end up being right. As the crowd that marveled at him will cry out, crucify him. Yet all of the sordid, ugly, scandalous behavior is done in accordance with Scripture. Jesus says, let Scripture be fulfilled. It's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Peter didn't want to let the Scriptures be fulfilled, so he took matters into his own hands hands, but Jesus submits himself to the cruel and ugly arrest and betrayal of his friends because he wants scripture to be fulfilled. What an example for us 
as we seek to live according to God's word. When we're arrested, perhaps when things aren't going our way, let scripture be fulfilled. Verse 50, we are told they all left him. Here's the fulfillment of what Jesus predicted back in verse uh, 27 that we saw last week, that they would all fall away. That is his disciples. Here is the fulfillment of Zechariah 13, verse 7, as we saw last week, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, verse 51 through 52 is a, a story that is actually only found in Mark among all the four Gospels. It tells of this young man who is wearing nothing but a linen cloth, and upon being seized, he he escapes naked. Now, throughout the history of interpretation, throughout church history, uh, this has generally been understood to be Mark, the very writer of this gospel. We know from Acts chapter 12 that Mark lived in Jerusalem, and perhaps it is in the upper room of Mark's house where his where Christ and his disciples will, will have the Lord's Supper. And the fact that, that Mark here goes unnamed seems to follow the same pattern you get from John when he writes his gospel and often goes unnamed whenever he is in the story or he designates himself the one whom Jesus loved. And what's more, given the fact that this story is unique to Mark's gospel, it is probably more than likely that this man who escapes naked is the writer of this gospel, Mark. Now, we are told that he is wearing a linen cloth. This would have been an expensive piece of clothing. Only rich people would wear linen cloth. He's a young, strong man, and he flees and runs away naked. This fits the prophecy of Amos chapter 2, verse 16, that says, He who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. In the context of Amos 2, God is speaking about the day of the Lord and judgment upon Israel. And here the fear of Christ, of God's judgment, is seen as this young man flees away, this young, strong man flees away naked. And so Jesus is left all alone. He will face the trial that we will see next week with no defense attorney, with no friends by his side. He will face the cruel and unusual hatred and accusations from his own people as a helpless, friendless man. And it is all done in accordance with Scripture. Let Scripture be fulfilled. I just want to close this morning by giving two points of application. First, we see the importance of understanding peace in terms of truth. We understand, we see the importance of understanding peace in terms of truth. How ironic is it that Jesus, who spoke of loving your enemies, who spoke of turning the other cheek, is here met with clubs and swords? Why such hatred? Why such animosity? Why such cruelty? Why the need for this cohort, this massive army 
with such violence running through their veins towards Christ, this Prince of Peace. After all, the Jewish people in no way were against peace. The Hebrew word shalom, which means peace, was a very important aspect within Judaism and among the leaders in Israel. It was one of the expectations for when Messiah came. He would bring peace for the people, among the people, and with God. The leaders aren't arresting Jesus because he's a man of peace and they are men of war. And they must bring put to death anyone that, that seems to promote peace. So why such hatred? Why such violence toward the Prince of Peace? Well, I think the answer lies in the fact that Jesus didn't speak of a general, abstract, sort of nebulous peace as we so often see today. Rather, his peace and the peace that he uttered was always connected to truth. And not just truth, but truth that confronts sinners. A truth that confronted time and time again, as we have seen laid out so clearly in this gospel, a truth that confronted the chief priests, scribes, and elders. The peace he championed was a peace that was always packed with the punch of truth a truth that offended the leaders in Israel, a truth that confronted them in their sin, a truth that confronted them in their self-autonomous rule. And so the response towards Christ is one of violence. They draw their clubs and their swords against him. I read the other day of uh, Lady Gaga, this pop star Lady Gaga, I'm sure many of you know, decided to take time during one of her concerts Uh, to go on a tirade against the vice president and the vice president's wife. Apparently, the vice president's wife was teaching, is uh, decided to teach an art class at an evangelical Christian school that bars employees from engaging in homosexual activity and not condoning transgender identity. Her response was filled with explicit and vulgar language toward the vice president and the vice president's Wife, but there is one thing that she said in that that ex- expletive-filled tirade uh, that I found particularly interesting. She said, "I am a Christian woman, and what I do know about Christianity is that we bear no prejudice, and everybody is welcome." For Lady Gaga, as long as the truth of Christ and of the Scriptures is stripped from his lips, that offends her. She can embrace Christ with open arms. There are no swords. There are no clubs. There's Christ who upholds her abstract, nebulous, defineless, undefined notion of peace. But the moment you put the bite of truth in Christ, the truth that offends her rule and authority, the truth that offends her thoughts on how the world should be run, then she is right there with the cohort. She is right there with the leaders in Israel with her sword and her club drawn. Really, what such a violent display from these leaders toward Jesus tells us, leaders who spoke constantly about shalom, constantly about peace, is that due to sin, we want peace on our own terms. There's not anyone in this room 
There's not any unbeliever that I know of that doesn't like peace. But due to sin, we want peace on our own terms. We do not want it on Christ's terms. Take the bite of truth out of Christ, which confronts us in our self-righteousness, which confronts us in our sin. You will have a false Christ, and you will have a false peace. Put the bite of his truth in and be offended. Stubbornly turn your back on him and continue in unrepentance. Whenever the true Christ is presented before you, you will come with him at, with anger, and you will come with him with your clubs and your swords out. Time and time again, the peace that Christ utters goes hand in hand with a truth that confronts us as sinners. And we can have one of two responses. We can run into our sin away from Christ, pick up our weaponry to destroy him, or we can run from our sin into Christ, throw down our weaponry, pick up our cross, and submit to his will whatever it is he says in his word. We must have peace on Christ's terms. And the terms of peace for Christ is confession of our sin, repentance of our sin, turning to Christ who alone has the cup of God's wrath poured out over him for all those that turn from their sin and believe in him. Unless we do that, we are with the cohort with our clubs and our swords drawn. Second, we see the importance of preparing for the storm ahead. We see the importance of preparing for the storms ahead. It's interesting and fascinating to see the contrast between Christ and his disciples here. Christ is so calm. In fact, he'll be calm throughout his arrest and trial will be something to marvel at. There is no anger. There's not a long argument for his innocence. There's a simple submission to what the Lord has brought about through the betrayal of his friend, through the betrayal of his people. Contrast that with the disciples here. What do we see? Remember the disciples along with Peter say just a few hours earlier, we will die with you as we saw last week. Before the storm hits, they are so confident in their ability to stand in the midst of the storm. But verse 50 packs a, punches us, packs a punch, they all fled. Just a few hours after such boastful confidence in their dedication to Christ, they all fled. And what is it that is really the major difference between Christ and his disciples here? It is Gethsemane. It is what we saw last week. What do we see from Jesus as he approached the cross? As we saw last week, we saw his recognition of his weakness. He was so in tune with his weakness and the horrifying reality and storm that was about to hit that we are told that he prayed three different times. He kept going back to his knees to pray before God. Yes, he is fully God, but he is fully man. And we see that full human nature in full effect at Gethsemane as he, as a finite and weak man, recognized his weakness and prayed for the Lord to strengthen him. 
He knows his weakness in that moment so well that he keeps going back to his knees before God, who alone can strengthen him for the fight. Contrast this with the disciples who are boastful and self-confident. I will die for you. They don't recognize their weakness. And in, their, in, in not recognizing their weakness, they don't recognize their need for prayer. So that when the storm comes, Christ, who has prepared his heart for the battle, is still before his enemies and before the will of his Father, while his disciples flee in terror. You know, you'll often hear a football coach say that, that the games aren't won on Saturday, but they are won Monday through Friday on the practice field. They aren't won on game day. They are won in that time of preparation for game day. How you prepare for the storm, brothers and sisters, that is promised to come your way if you are a Christian living in a fallen world will determine how you will deal with the inevitable storm that will hit. Now that storm will look differently for each and every one of us, But if we be faithful believers, you can rest assured there will be storms that come our way. Are you recognizing your weakness before the storm comes? Or is your weakness only exposed after the storm hits? Are you going to your knees before the storm, seeing your helpless state, seeing your weak, finite, sinful state, calling for God to uphold you and sustain you? Or are your prayers only reactionary? Do they only come after the storm has overtaken you? And you say to yourself, you go through that repetitious pattern, I've learned my lesson now. I'll pray more repetitiously. I'll get into a a habit of prayer, but sooner or later you go back to your old ways and that same pattern continues. Storms flood over you. And only then do you go to your knees. Courage versus cowardice is not determined on the battlefield. It is determined in the training days, in the prayer room. How you respond on the battlefield will only serve to highlight how well you've been trained. Are you being trained in the school of self-confidence and self-assurance today? that allows us to sleep when we should be on our knees? Or are we being trained in the school of Christ, where we daily drop to our knees in recognition of our feeble, finite condition, so that when the storm hits, we will not be shaken, but we will be at peace, saying, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let's pray. Our dear Father in heaven, let the scriptures be fulfilled. We have a choice, each and every one of us here. Will we live in accordance with your word? Because no matter how much we kick against the goads, we cannot somehow thwart your foreordained ends. We pray, O Father, that we would learn the lesson from Christ here, that we would prepare ourselves dutifully as your soldiers who have been called out to go into the storms of this fallen world that Satan himself swirls about us each and every day. Pray, O Father, that we would be men and women, boys and girls, who would fall to our knees daily 
seeing our weakness, seeing our finitude, and calling for your power and your strength to sustain us and uphold us for the battle you call each and every one of us into. Pray, O Father, that we would hide in Jesus Christ our Lord too as we prepare for this battle, that we would not rest on our own strengths, but that we would lean ever more on Christ who has become weak for us so that we might be strong according to that spirit he has poured out into our hearts because of his finished work on the cross. Bless us, we pray. Make us soldiers who pray to you daily, we pray. For we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you please stand for our closing hymn, All Glory, Laud, and Honor. Mm -hmm.